Now, let's say you got a, a scientist, a physicist, and he's got this nifty new telescope that'll look farther out than anybody's telescope ever looked before. All right, so he gets his telescope and he points it out there and he turns it on and a random draw is taken from a probability distribution of all the possibilities and that's what he sees. Now you have the social system of individual units of consciousness and the larger consciousness system. Now, if you have a social system, how does that social system configure itself for the lowest entropy possible? So think of a social system. Let's say I have 10,000 people and all the people are about equal in two different groups. So here's 10,000 and over here's 10,000 people and I'm going to give them all equal resources. They're all as intelligent as each other, and I'm going to give this one the same resources. I'm going to set them off on their own and come back, you know, 100 years later and see what they've done with their resources. Okay? So what do you think will happen? Well, and which ones do you think will have the, the best effect and the least effect? Well, that group that cooperates, they all cooperate with each other, share, work together, take care of each other, and manage to spread those resources around as best they can so that everybody gets along, okay? Now, on the other side, we'll say we have, and I'll call that just the love group because they care about each other. On the other side, I call the fear group. Now, the fear group, they don't trust each other because they're fearful. If you have no trust, then cooperation is difficult to get. And everybody is looking out for number one for themselves. So even if they do get a little cooperation and they find along that cooperation a good way that they can advance by breaking that cooperation, you know, taking all the money and running, they'll do it because it's all about them. It's not about mm -hmm. others. So what happens is that in that group that is fear-based, that has no trust, that is all self-centered about them, they eventually realize that you can gang up with a couple of other people and now you can take stuff away from just single people because you're a group, you have more power. So groups start to form up and eventually these groups then have to fight with each other and they form up into larger groups of groups. And eventually that group is a very hierarchical thing. The guy on top, or let's say the people on top consume 95% of all the resources and everybody else you know, gets by on the crumbs that are left. And the people down at the very bottom are the people that do most of the grunt work that nobody else wants to do, and they just get mm -hmm. enough to survive. That's what you get. That's how that progresses. Okay, so we have these two groups. Now, what does that tell us? That tells us that the low entropy group is a group that shares and cares and has caring for the whole as well as the self. Okay, they're not self-centered. And the, the fear group has high entropy. They're always struggling. And even if one group happens to dominate, well, somebody wants to be in that dominant position and they're going to take that one down, you know, by yeah, highly or, unstable. Or so it's highly unstable. So the fear group is unstable. It never gets very far. Anybody gets much, it gets torn back down. So in the love group, 
somebody gets a good idea or gets an advantage, figures out something neat, he shares it. Everybody benefits from that advantage and everybody gets what they need. Okay, now in the, the group of love, you have maximum amount of free individual choice. Your choices are optimal. You have maximum amount of choices. In the fear group, you have the minimal amount of choices because of all the things that are liable to get you. There's a lot of things you can't do. So think about now, how does that apply to us? Well, that fear group sounds a whole lot like us, our environment, right? We started in small groups and tribes and we fought each other and then we found out we could do better if we had a bigger tribe because then others couldn't overtake us and we could overtake them and we got big tribes and then we got land and we got nations and we fight each other trying to take each other's stuff. So that's kind of the way we are. We're in the fear group. The other group optimizes. They don't have any of that, that waste and it's very stable and everybody has the maximum opportunities to be whatever they want to be because everyone in that group wants everybody else to have what they want and what they need. And everybody can kind of shuffle around a little bit to try to make that happen. So what that tells us is that cooperation, caring and sharing are the low entropy solution for a social group. People interacting with each other with free will choices. All right. So now what's the purpose of this consciousness system? It's to lower its entropy. And how does it do that? It does that with all of these individuated units of consciousness out there making choices in the virtual reality. And the choices, if they're low entropy, they're choices of caring and love and helping. It's how can I help, not what can I get? So that then, tells us what our purpose is. Well, our purpose fundamentally is the lower entropy, but what that means in a social group is become love, become caring, care about other people, not be self-centered. So that's really what we're evolving toward. So this so idea now, see, you get some big ideas here. You know, some of the mystics say, well, we're all one. Well, yes, we are all one. We're all piece of this larger conscious system and mm -hmm. uh, other you know, if you look at the fundamentals of most of the major religions, it's about peace and love and caring. Well, yes, that is what it's about. And that's how we evolve individually. And as we evolve, the whole system evolves. And besides that, the larger system, you can think of that like the operating system, you know, the, it's kind of in charge, it's the management. It is advantaged if we succeed. If we succeed, the whole system lowers its entropy because we're pieces of the system and we're lowering our entropy. So it will do what it can to help us succeed. So you mentioned synchronicities. Why mm -hmm. do synchronicities happen? Because the system wants you to succeed. So what you need is the information that's in this book and you walk into a bookstore or a library and this book like jumps off the shelf into your hands. You know, it's just all the books are sitting there except this one is pulled halfway out and gets your attention. Unless that book is like the anarchist cookbook, which <laughs> would increase entropy, right? So yeah. you would have a hard time finding it in this example. Yeah, right. So the system would like you to succeed by making good choices. So it helps. It helps you along when it can. 
because your success is also its success. We are part of its strategy for its own evolution. So now that kind of puts the whole thing in context. Why is there a virtual reality? Why would consciousness do that? You know, what are the players and who are they and why are they doing that? It's because the choice is to evolve or de evolve. And if you keep de evolving, you end up back in that state of randomness and you don't even have an information system anymore. So that's, we'll just call that death. The information system dies. So just like here in our biology, it's evolve or die. So that's the purpose, the cause. That's where we're going. That's why we're here. And that then defines who we are, why we're here, where did here come from, you know, what our purpose is being here, and a whole lot of things then fall into place with just that understanding. So this is a virtual reality. It's being computed. Now, how does that work? You're a piece of consciousness, and mm -hmm. you interact with the larger consciousness system, which is the server. Okay? The server sends you a bunch of data. You look at that data, and you interpret that data as this reality. Same way it works in World of Warcraft. You log on to a server. The server sends your computer a bunch of data. That data is what? A million pixels lit up on a screen. And each pixel has position, color, and brightness. Three variables on every pixel. So you get a million dots of light and you look at it and you say, oh, there's a river, there's a tree, there's a person walking around. Oh, that guy's got a long white beard. And you interpret all of that data to be this reality. So now the reality only exists in the minds of the players. It doesn't really exist as a thing of itself. If nobody logs on to World of Warcraft, what's the server doing of World of Warcraft? Nothing. It's got nobody there. Somebody mm -hmm. logs on, and now the server starts sending that person data, you see. So without the players, there is no virtual reality. Virtual reality isn't a thing. It's just a computed thing, and it's only computed in the minds of the players. Now, another interesting idea is that the player doesn't necessarily interpret that information correctly. There can mm -hmm. be errors in its interpretation. The player interprets all of those points of light on the screen depending on their own background, their own experience. When you first play World of Warcraft, if you're in your first, you know, your first character playing your first game, there's a whole lot of things you miss. You have no idea the significance of stuff that goes on and your character falls in the water and he drowns because you don't know if you just pointed his head up, he'd swim. But you don't know that yet, you know? So there's just a whole lot of things you don't know. So you have to learn through experience. So everybody doesn't interpret what they see exactly, you know, with everything there. It's based on your experience. So you get data from your experience, knowledge, ignorance, fear, whatever else is in you, you interpret that data. And that is your reality. That is this physical reality. And it's a multiplayer game. So if I reach out and slap you, then the game will have you feeling the slap and reacting to it, just like in the World of Warcraft, you know, they fight with each other and they interact and do things to each other. 
and it's got rules. You know, if your World of Warcraft elf falls off a cliff, he gets hurt. You know, he's out of, out of action for a while. Well, in there, it's hit points. He loses hit points. Well, here, you know, you get hurt or you get killed. Or you can get killed falling off a cliff in World of Warcraft, too. So, you know. Now, what about the non-physical components of that reality? So when you did your out-of-body experience, was that still in the simulation at a different level or was that outside no, of the simulation? That's outside of the simulation. I'm consciousness. Okay. I'm a piece of consciousness. I'm not limited to that virtual reality, just like you're the player of World of Warcraft, you've got another reality around you. World of Warcraft is just where you play, mm -hmm. right? So it's more like this. With you playing World of Warcraft, you're not immersed in it. You can always put the game on pause and go have a sandwich or go to the bathroom or something else and come back to it. Well, the way this works, you have this larger conscious system. A subset of that is the individuated unit of consciousness. And a subset of that is a thing I call a free will awareness unit. And that subset, just a partitioned off piece, takes all of the quality, all of the how low its entropy is up to this point from the good choices it's made. It takes that quality and that then is the player of an avatar. That's at the birth of that avatar. And that free will awareness unit is the consciousness that's playing it. It has no history. It doesn't remember anything intellectual. So it can't remember where it was, what it came from, how it got there. So from its viewpoint of that free will awareness unit, it is that avatar. Because every bit of its experience that it can remember and know about is experience it had through that avatar. Mm -hmm. So it believes it is that avatar. You don't believe that you're the elf in World of Warcraft because you're sitting in your own home, you know, having a sandwich and conversation with your sister when she walks by, you know you're in some other space. But this is a totally 100% immersive reality that free will awareness unit doesn't know anything else other than that. So that's the way we are. We think we are that avatar, but we're really a piece of consciousness. We can not look at that data stream. There's other data streams. We can say, all right, here's the data stream that defines the physical reality. And here's another data stream that is somewhere else. And that somewhere else is always non-physical compared to the data stream that defines the reality. So then we talk about physical and non-physical, and it turns out that there is really no meaning to physical and non-physical. Mm -hmm. Physical is where your intention is. Physical is where your awareness is. Non-physical is where your awareness is not. So as long as you're a, a free will awareness unit playing a game, of, you know, virtual reality game with an avatar, then that virtual reality is your reality. That seems physical. So the world of Warcraft seems physical to your elf. You know, your elf can't walk through doors. He has to open doorknobs. You know, he, a lot of things he can't do. He has to deal with, with the physical rules that define it. Well, you're the same way. You play this character, this, this human called Sean, and you have to abide by all the rules. You're making all the choices. And you have no idea that there's any other reality other than this, because it's the only thing you've ever known. Mm -hmm. okay? So that's it. But you're still consciousness, and you can say, oh, over here's a different data stream. I can attach to that. Now I'm in some other reality. I'm not in this reality. I'm in a different reality, and I interpret that data to be this way. Well, 
when you're dreaming, you're in a different reality. You connect to a different data stream. You're not getting the physical data stream anymore. And when you're dreaming, you feel that in your dream, you're physical. All kinds of physical things happen in your dream, right? You run, you jump, you hide, you do things, you interact with people, you interact with things, and you and they are all physical. And your body lying in your bed asleep is non-physical because that's not in your dream reality. That's some other reality that you're not in now. You're in the dream reality now. Mm-hmm. So you can go into different realities, different virtual realities and experience within those rule sets. So our dream reality has a very loose rule set. You can fly, you can teleport, you can do all kinds of things in a dream reality that you can't do here because this is a very tight rule set. And it's mm-hmm. meant to be a tight rule set because everything interacts with everything else. You it's know, a harder so game. <laughs> it's a much, yeah, it's a much harder game. And you don't have as much freedom in the game because you have to obey all the rules and the rules all have consequences. Mm-hmm. So the basic game rule is what we call physical causality. You have to have physical causality here in order to do something. So you flap your arms real fast trying to fly. It won't work because there's no physical causality that, that lets that happen. It just doesn't work. Where in your dreams, you could probably fly without flapping your arms. Or you could flap your arms if you wanted to. You know, it, it, it's different because you don't have a physical causality in that rule set. So yes, you can travel around with your mind and you can get different data streams and you can then experience those realities. Now, if you want to get in a reality, let's say you go to another reality that is physical-like, it's like ours. It has a very tight rule set with a physical causality in it. It's not ours, it's some other reality. Well, you can be outside of it and just look at it and hear it, you can get the data, you know, that you hear, you can get the conversation as an outsider, but you can't interact. Because in order to interact, you have to have the rendering engine of that reality put you in the data stream. That's what makes you physical in that data stream. Otherwise, you're non physical. So you can Mm -hmm. interact kind of non physically with it. But to be physical in it, you have to get the, the rendering engine to actually put you in the data stream so that the other individuals there look at you and see you you're part of their data stream now you see so you can do that you can get into those other realities but you have to have a good working relationship with the system to allow you to do it you can't just barge in you can't force your way in because the system won't put you in the data stream if they don't want to if you're going to make a mess of things so That's one thing. Now, yes, I've done that. I've been to other reality frames. I get the system to put me in. I've interacted with other people, physically interacted in other reality frames. I've been to lots of frames where you don't. All the things I'm telling you aren't just theoretical possibilities. These are all the things that I've done. These are all things out of my experience. So there's what other reality what other reality frames are there? Yeah, you have dreams, you have OBE, what other well a reality frame is always a data stream that you get. So when the system created this virtual reality, it didn't seem to want to put all its eggs in one basket to see how this virtual reality worked. All right, we may self-destruct. This virtual reality could turn to dust, right? That's a possibility. So 
because we have free will choice, so we can make bad choices as well as good choices. So the system made more than one. It's got several of those going. The rule sets are fairly similar. The real basic rule sets are fairly similar because there's not a lot of initial conditions and rule sets that turn out to be stable over billions of years. Now, that's a fine-tuned thing, and it's not like you can do that a hundred different ways. You can't. There's just a few ways that that mm -hmm. seems to work. So the basic physics is similar, although the kind of characters that evolve there can be very different. You can have your six-legged dog in some other virtual reality. So those kinds of things would be different. But the, the fundamentals of it, you know, they all have gravity. They all have, you know, a lot of the things that we have in, in our basic physics. So that's the nature of our reality. This is a computed reality. Now, you can get a whole lot of physicists to say that we live in an information-based reality. You can probably get 30% of the physicists, and these would be all the ones that are in particle physics and are in quantum theory. Right. So those guys will tell you, well, it looks like we're in an information-based reality because they know that. They know that if they try to compute the, what comes out of that big hydron collider, you know, that's, that's over in Europe, that they can't do it except seeing reality as information. That's how they have to deal with it, and it's based on probability. So they say, okay, it seems to be we're based on information. But you say, well, what does that mean? And they shake their hands and say, I don't have a clue what that means. I have no idea what that means. But it's just because they're stuck in a box and they're stuck with this materialist thing and they're stuck in a box because information is not material. Information is not a material thing. Information mm -hmm. is non-physical. Let me put it a different way. Information is the significance, the importance, the, the value. You know, it's not the book. It's not the cover on the book. It's not the ink. It's the ideas and the information and the significance that the ink tells you. That's the information. Mm -hmm. So the information depends on a consciousness. Consciousness gets the information. The physical stuff, the, the squiggles of ink on the pages, you know, the paper itself, all of that, we'll call that data. And data can be passed around from person to person. But it takes a consciousness to look at that data and derives significance from it, meaning, value out of it. That requires a consciousness, you see. So information is non-physical, and it belongs to consciousness. It's not a physical trait. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, if you take a book, you can put a book in a bottle, you can say, here's its volume, here's how much it weighs, you get all these physical characteristics, but they have nothing to do with the meaningfulness and the significance of what's written in that book. That's uh, non-physical. So information is non-physical. So if the scientist said, well, this is a, a reality based on information, if they had an understanding that, well, information isn't really physical, that's attached to consciousness. It's not a physical thing. Data can be physical. Media can be physical, media that hold data, but information isn't. And then they would say, well, how do you get information? It means that reality must be computed because if it's informational, then anything informational can be computed. There isn't anything that's in the information world that can't be computed. So that means it's computable. 
And if it's computable, that means it's a simulation or a virtual reality. So there really is no other logical explanation. If you look at the logic to, well, this reality is information-based, which a lot of physicists will say, but they refuse to see the next step. But the logical consequence of this relation being information-based is that it's a virtual reality. That's the only way you can get a reality that's information-based as if it's a computed reality. There is no other way. So they're almost there. They've kind of got the root of it, but they can't bring themselves to see the connection. Now, how much of it is, because in a simulation, you know, if you are a software designer, you can design a simulation that's highly deterministic. You can design a simulation that's highly stochastic, or you can design a simulation that has a mixture of both. In a video game, there's frequently just one end, but there are multiple paths to that one end. Sure. How does, based on your theory, how does this simulation or this reality behave? Is it a mixture of both? Yeah. Is it one or the other? Well, for one, it's, it's, remember, this is an evolved simulation. It started with initial conditions and rule set. It's not something that was programmed. But the rule set is primarily deterministic. It's got some randomness in it because some things are random, like uh, radioactive decay. You know, that stuff comes mm -hmm. out in a random direction. There's natural randomness in things. So it's not absolutely deterministic because there's randomness involved. But for the most part, it's deterministic. These are the rules. You know, gravity mm -hmm. is a rule. It's deterministic. You drop the rock, it always falls down. It's not like 10% of the time it falls up. It's always going to fall down. So the deterministic rules are there, but those rules can be used by the simulation to create a description at a higher level that's probabilistic. And it's much more efficient. Let me give you an example. If you had, let's say, an old uh, Civil War cannon, okay, and you wanted to make a model of it, a computer model of it, you wanted to make a virtual reality Civil War cannon, well, it's just a simple machine. It's a tube, and you put gunpowder in one end of the tube, it's a cylinder. You put gunpowder in one, you roll a ball in on top of the gunpowder, and you light a fuse, the gunpowder explodes, high pressure, and a ball gets pushed out the other end, right? It's a very simple thing. Now, if you were to try to model that at the atomic level, you couldn't do it. It's too hard. If you try to model it at the subatomic level, it's even harder. If you try to model it even at the molecular level, it's too hard. You'd have all the world supercomputers working for a week just to get the damn ball out of the tube once. You know, it's just too much. But what you do when it's too hard like that is you do that model and you use the deterministic equations, but you only make the model once. So it is hard, but you just make a model one time and here's a cannon model, all right? And I've got it down to a fairly detailed level, but you know when a cannon fires, if it fires 10 shots, they don't 10 all land on top of each other. There's what you call ballistic dispersion. But they land in a pattern around it because there's air currents, the, the barrel actually flexes, after the first shell's gone, the temperature changes, and then more you shoot, the temperature... So there's all these variables that are involved. And when you try to track all those variables deterministically, it's just horrendous. But 
I can make this cannon and I can fire this cannon and I can fire it, let's say a thousand times and I can look at the pattern. Mm -hmm. So, okay, here's a thousand fires. Now here's the distribution, the probability distribution of where those shells land. Now I have a model, instead of having to do a bottoms up molecule by molecule, I just go into that distribution, a cannon fires. I do a random draw from that distribution and that's where I put the cannonball. Simple, you see, mm -hmm. really, really simple. So you've taken a problem that is too hard to work and you've turned it into a problem that's not only not too hard to work, but it's almost trivial. <laughs> you know, you're picking yeah. something out of a lookup table. You know, you just pick something random out of a distribution and you stick the cannonball there and that's where it goes. So in your model, goes boom and the next thing you know, kaplunk and it rolls. It's all random, you know, but it'll stay in that pattern. So if the scientists got that cannon, you know, if the elves all got that cannon and shot it a thousand times, they'd get the same pattern because that's the pattern you use to drop those balls, which is a pattern that your deterministic models allows you to compute. But now every time a cannon fires, let's say I got a, a Civil War game going on here and I got 50,000 cannons, you know, both sides added together and they're all firing. Every one of them is a random draw from a probability distribution. You see, it, it's simple. And okay, I'll have little variations in my random draw. I'll say, here's a pattern as the temperature goes up for the number of balls that are fired. And here's a little, you know, so you can put little tweaks in them so that there are little variations you can keep track of, but that's all statistical too. So somebody running around in this civil war game they don't know that that ball landed there because it was a random draw from a probability distribution. They have no idea because it makes sense. That's about where the balls land. And this one lands this way and this one lands over a little bit. They know that there's dispersion and they don't all land at the same place. So nobody on the ground inside that knows that it's a random draw from a probability distribution, not a whole very complex physical problem that's got literally a thousand variables that are all changing, you know, down at the molecular level, you know, the mm -hmm. powder never burns uniformly. Well, you know, the temperature isn't even throughout the bun. It's a little hotter here and not so hot there. You know, the barrel of that gun isn't a perfect cylinder. You know, it's got flaws in it and on and on and on. You and know, the hotter it gets, the more it'll bend, the yeah, more it bends. Exactly. The... And it's just, there's, you know, and the air isn't still, you've got wind blowing out there. The, I mean, you got all these variables going on and to try to keep up with that in a bottoms up materialistic model is just ridiculous. It's so much easier to use your deterministic rule set, create a model that works, and then you can use that model with little tweaks, thousands, millions of places all over the place. It's simple. You know, you don't have to do that. Now we look at our biology. Okay, it's very complex. I get that as hugely complex biology. Does all that have to be computed? No, none of that has to be computed. You've got an elf. Does your elf have a heart? Does your elf have eardrums? <laughs> he hears noises. Does your elf bleed? Everything that shows, everything that, that the action shows, that has to be rendered. Nothing mm -hmm. else has to be rendered. So here I am, I'm sitting in a room, and does the system have to render oxygen here for me to breathe? Well, of course not. That's silly. Nobody can see oxygen. 
So I just sit here and carry on and talk with you. And it's just assumed that there's oxygen in this room. Now get a chemist up here with a little test kit to see what the oxygen level is. And, oh, it'll have to render that oxygen because somebody's making a measurement. You see? So because somebody Mm -hmm. measurement, it has to render something physical for that measurement that's being made. And we just assume that it's always been there and it's always like that. And we're just measuring what it is, but it's actually occurring there by probability because we're making the measurements. You see how that ties right into the quantum physics and the So Tom, are you telling me that if a tree falls in the woods and no one's there to hear it, does it make a sound? (laughs) (laughs) I'm telling you that there is no tree and there is no woods because if there's nobody there to see it, then there's no point in rendering the woods because there's no player. Now let's say there's a squirrel lives in that woods then it has to be rendered according to mm-hmm. the squirrel's consciousness, which is a lot different than a human consciousness. So that squirrel gets a data stream that shows that squirrel what's going on, you know, the, the trees, the lives, the nuts, you know, whatever. But the squirrel only has that much rendering that suits its level of awareness. You know, the squirrel's not worried about oxygen. You know, the squirrel doesn't have a lot of the awareness, say, that people have, but it gets rendered. But there are no conscious beings in the woods, then there are no woods because the woods would never be rendered. Remember, the game only exists in the minds of the players. So the squirrel may be a player. So the squirrel's a, a minor player and he gets a little data stream. And you're a player, you get a data stream. So the reality only exists in the minds of the players. So that's the key thing. There is no virtualized, so there is no woods. So if there's some woods that there's no conscious being in there, then there is no woods. It doesn't exist. That is the only way it would exist if, if there was a satellite that just passed over it at a certain point in time that was being monitored pictures. by somebody else. Yeah. yeah, taking pictures. If it takes a picture, then it sees the woods. Now, let's say you got a, a scientist, a physicist, and he's got this nifty new telescope that'll look farther out than anybody's telescope ever looked before. All right, so he gets his telescope. And he points it out there and he turns it on and a random draw is taken from a probability distribution of all the possibilities. And that's what he sees. You see, that's what he sees. Now, once he sees it, it becomes a part of this reality. Mm -hmm. Just like if your elf walks into a tree, that tree now is part of the reality. Anybody else walks that same spot, they'll also see that same tree. It's part of the game. So that then becomes part of the reality. And anybody else looks in that spot, they'll see the same thing he saw, roughly. Their equipment's the same. So that defines it. But now if anybody looks at another spot, say next to it, another random draw from all the probability distribution of the possibilities. You see, there's lots of possibilities. So let's say what might be out there in outer space may be a thousand different possibilities. But each possibility has more or less probability you know so some things are really rare and other things are very common so you take the random draw out of that probability distribution of all the possibilities and that's what you see so you're always going to see something that's possible but you may see something that's rare or maybe something that's not you see so that's the way reality is created now with your intention you can modify those probability distributions That's what I was talking about, how you can use your mind to heal or to get a parking space. 
you can modify the probability distributions depending on how good you are at it, you know, how clear your mind is, how much you can get your intellect out of the game and how much you practice with your intuitive side. You can make things happen or not happen. So that's the power of positive thinking, right? If you're a positive thinker, then a lot of positive things happen to you. Mm -hmm. If you're constantly whining and complaining and fussing and you're negative and, oh, woe is me and that kind of stuff, then all kinds of crap comes your way because (laughs) you're creating that reality because of your own modification of the probabilities. So if you're really worried, if you've got this little lump you found here on your neck and you're really worried about something, oh my God, that's probably cancer. Oh no, you know, and you get really worried about it. What you're doing is raising the probability that that's cancerous. Yeah. And if you say, eh, yeah, it's, it's all, I'll get the doctor to look at it next time. I mean, you know, it's not a big deal. And I'll go in and see because it's good to find these things early, you know, so I don't know what it is. And you go in and he sees it. Now you've raised the probability that it's benign because right. you're not feeding the negative side of the story. You're feeding the positive side. So you side. still get cancer, but it's much right. less likely because right. of the intention. Right. Right. It might still be cancer. And you may say, oh, I'll really work on it and I'll use my mind to be real positive, but you still might get cancer anyway. I'm not saying you force reality to be the way you want it. You just modify the probabilities. And what you can do to modify them depends on what the probabilities are. Because say, if you got something that's mm-hmm. a million to one and you want it to be one to a million, well, then you're not going to do that. This is too much. You, you probably aren't going to change it that much unless there's a huge amount of randomness that goes with it. But things that have a lot of randomness involved in them, they're not fixed. They could be this way. They could be that way. They have uncertainty. That's the word I'm looking for. It's an uncertainty principle. Things that have uncertainty in them then can be modified more easily. Mm-hmm. Things that have very little uncertainty, then much harder to modify. It's like the double slit experiment, right? If you're looking at the particles it goes through, you'll see one particle hit the screen. But if you're not looking at the particle and you look at the screen, you'll see the fringe pattern, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, if you look at the particle and you say, this just went through slit A, Okay, then what will happen is you'll get a particle that will hit right behind slit A. So as long yeah. as you sit there, no, this one went through the slit B, well, you'll get a particle that will hit the screen right behind slit B. You see, because when you measured the particle at A, you've created a particle. There was a probability, and there was a lot of possibilities, and a random draw was taken from those possibilities, and you got one going through A, and it's going to hit A because now you've got a particle now. Because the measurement made a particle. And once the measurement is in the system, it stays in the system. And we all know that particles travel in a straight line unless acted on by some external force. There is no external force to make them move around and make a you know a fringe pattern or a diffraction pattern, or what else we call it, an interference pattern, right? There's no right. there's nothing that makes an interference pattern to move those particles like that. But if you don't look and a measurement that's not made until the screen. You don't look at the holes. Well, you don't really create a particle until they hit the screen. That's when the measurement's made. It's when they hit the screen. And when they hit the screen, a random draw is taken from a probability distribution. It looks just like an interference pattern. That's the probability distribution. And that's what it looks like. It looks like an interference pattern. And why was the probability distribution just like an interference pattern? Because that's the only solution that avoids a conflict between quantum physics and optics. 
because if you didn't make that distribution pattern look like an interference pattern, you know, that probability distribution look like an interference pattern, you'd have a major conflict, logical conflict between optics, because we know about optics, you know, you get two slits to source, you know, and they, they interfere mm -hmm. and they can, you know, you draw the little lines and this path is a little longer than that path and you get the pattern, you can compute the interference pattern. But when you have photons who do not interact with each other, a photon is a non-interactive thing. It's not like little photons rub up against each other and decide what to do. They're totally non-interactive. So whether you have a million photons coming out of a laser pen or whether you have just one, it's the same deal. They're just a bunch of independent photons. Okay, well, independent photons go through those two slits, whether they come in a, in a, a bunch or not. So if they come in a, in a whole bunch, we call that optics. Now you got a laser pen shining on two slits and they come by the billions and they make an interference pattern. But the photons don't interact. So whether they come in billions or whether they come one at a time should make no difference whatsoever. There's no interaction between them at all. So how many is irrelevant? Aha, uh -huh. there's going to be a problem if the system chooses any other distribution function other than <laughs> that one. So that's the one it chooses. And that's why you get that because that then creates no conflict between optics and quantum physics. Last question. How, what experiments can individuals do to test this theory in just the day-to-day -day life, like little small experiments? Oh, well, you know, there's day-to-day -day life experiments and then there's big quantum mechanics experiments. I got a bunch of quantum physics experiments that are being done in universities now that will test this theory because where the everyday physicist says, this is the way it works and this is what will happen, I disagree. I said, no, it's not the way it works and that's not what's going to happen. This other thing's going to happen. So I got some physicists doing the stuff in laboratories. So that is going to happen someday, I hope. I've had it going on now for a long time, but it's, it's mostly been uh, administrative problems, not really science problems so much. These are difficult experiments. You know, when you're dealing with something that goes what, 186,000 miles per second. <laughs> that's pretty fast. And you're doing this in a lab that's only, you know, a couple of yards. You know, you're making this measurement on a table, on a bench. Well, you know, to measure that little guy going that fast and the amounts of energy are minuscule, you know, in a photon. And so we're talking about things that are really hard to do, but they're doable. And the science hasn't been nearly so hard as just getting the people and the equipment together long enough to get it done. Mm -hmm. That's one set of experiments. I got it going in two different universities. I got another university doing it. And their hard part is that they were uh, engineers, not physicists. And they, of course, most of this is electronic. All the equipment's mostly electronic equipment. So, you know, they've got the inside knowledge of how all the equipment right. works and what it's doing. And they've been struggling with the details though. They've been struggling with it for quite a while. The other university has physicists that have done this experiment before many times, and they know how to set it up and how to do it and have all the equipment and 
they just have to get it done. But they hire some person that was a postdoc in from some of the university, and they were about two weeks, three weeks away from getting the final answer, and the postdoc's up. He has to go back to his university because <laughs> the postdoc's up. You know, that kind of thing is what we've been running into just life, you know. And then they got a second guy, and he works on it for a couple of months, and he just doesn't know what he's doing. So the, the, the professor that's in charge, he said, no, you, you can't do this. You know, you, you got to go do something else. And now you have to wait for a whole semester to go by because that's when personnel can change at a university. They don't pull people in in the middle of semesters because all these people have to do other things and not just to do my experiment. They have to do other right, things. Right, they got to teach mean, classes, TA, and all that stuff. Kind of stuff. So all that has to be yeah. coordinated. And yeah, it's just been that kind of a you know, crap happens sort of a problem, but it'll get done. You know, we've got it and it will be done. So that'll be interesting. But what everyday things can people do? Well, there's lots of things, you know, in my books, I tell people, don't believe anything I tell you, because believing me is not helpful. That's just another belief. Beliefs are the enemy. You don't want to believe anything, you know, if it's not your experience, it's not your truth. It's somebody else's truth. You have to have your own truth. So if mm -hmm. I say this is the way reality is, you shouldn't believe me. You should say, well, maybe that's possible and look at the possibilities and say, well, I'll give that a 0.1 or a 0.99 or wherever you, you want to place it, but then be open to more information and data mm -hmm. as it comes in. So that's the way you approach life, not saying I believe it. I don't believe it. That's right. that's just not helpful it doesn't take you anywhere you know you just become a believer or a disbeliever disbeliever is the same as a believer it's just a believing the opposite rather than you know that rather than the thing so that's just not helpful so then all my people came to me and they said hey look you tell us we need to to uh, have this as our own experience so how do we do that you know help us out right. so right. i said all right you got me there i wasn't going to teach any paranormal kind of stuff because that you know kind of tarnishes my qualified, you know, with the physics community, but you're right. I see your point. You can't get there without a little help. So I set up courses to teach people how to experience the larger conscious system. I think the course was exploring, exploring consciousness with Thomas Campbell, you know, and I've done that now for mm -hmm. a decade or so. So, you know, lots of people have gone through the course and that's the course I was telling you that I used to hone my binaural beats because I used binaural beats in that course and I'd keep changing them around to, to try to optimize them for that particular course. And that course, now, I haven't done that course anymore because what we did, what Donna and Keith, the, those are the people I told you to go see if you wanted to buy the binaural beats at MBT events, they took all of those courses, so it was like 50 of them or something, and they went through all of them and collected the best out of all of them, the best questions that were asked, the best answers that was given, the best descriptions of how the paranormal things worked. And they went through all of them, combined those all into one audio program. And they come with the binaural beats and it doesn't cost much. The whole thing, I think it's like $125 or $150 or something. The course itself, had you gone to the course, it would have been $2,000 because there would have right. been meals and lodging and, you know, and all that stuff. But this is really cheap. So you get that course and you'll get the best of all of those and you'll learn how to do all the paranormal things, how they work, why they work that way, why they don't work sometimes. What are the variables? What's important? What's not? 
So I suggest that anybody that wants to experience paranormal things, go get those courses. It doesn't cost much. It's a week-long course, but you can take it your own time. You can take mm -hmm. it as many times as you want. You can spread that week over a month if you want. It's an audio course that you get. You can get them from the same place, and MBT events. You can find that there. And I think the final beats come with it. So for $125, you save the $25 that would be you know, for the binaural beats. But anyway, there's lots of things you can do. The doing paranormal things is easy. It's not really very hard. The most difficult thing is to get your intellect out of the process. Mm -hmm. Your mind, your consciousness has two different paths that it processes information. One of them is an intellectual path, uses logic. The other is an intuitive path. It doesn't use logic. It's beyond logic. If the intellect tries to get the information out of the intuitive path, it fails. It's the whole thing. If you're getting information out of the intuitive path and the intellect comes over and starts to get involved in it, it crashes. It, it's gone. It doesn't work anymore. Okay, that intuitive path isn't something that's magical. I mean, we all learn things intuitively about typing. Right now, most everybody touch types, right? Because typing is a thing, you know, computers are a thing. You know, when I grew up, the only people that took typing were secretaries. Nobody else took typing. That wasn't part of the academic course. That was part of the commercial course. But that's different now. Everybody types at a keyboard because that's the main entryway into mm -hmm. the computer. So a lot of people touch type. Well, that's intuitive. That's entirely intuitive. How do your fingers know where to go? You know, when you're doing touch typing, touch typing, I mean, you're not saying, okay, that's a T, where's the T? Oh, there it is right next to the R and the Y. I got it. You know, if you type like that, that's how I type. You know, if you type like that, you're very limited in how fast <laughs> you can type. You know, you're down around five words per minute at the best. But if you touch type, well, you can go as fast as somebody can talk. You know, you can really go quickly. And that's because you are doing it all intuitively. If your intellect got involved and said, where's that key next to which one? You'd be done. You know, it would crash. You just have to keep your intellect out of it and know that your fingers know what they're doing and let them do it intuitively. It's so like driving. Too, yeah, like driving, yeah. Right. At first, when you're driving, you're like this, you know, <laughs> trying to do it. And pretty soon, you know, you get home and you think, how did I get here? I don't even remember the trip, <laughs> you know? So, yes, anything that's complex, you can do so much better and more efficiently intuitively than you can intellectually. The intellectual tool isn't meant to do complex processes. It's meant to analyze, decode. It, it, there's a lot of things it can do, and you need that intellect. But the intuitive side, like athletes, the difference between a guy that gets a gold star and a guy that doesn't get any stars at all isn't how hard he trained or how good his trainer was. They're all fit. They all know what they're doing. They all have practice. It's the one that has the mental game going. Because of his mindset on winning and the positive attitude, he raises the probability of him being the winner. And he does real well. And most athletes will tell you that they're having a bad day, which means they can't get their really their mind focused and intuitive space. They can't do anything at all. You know, they have a real crappy performance. And being a top notch athlete has more to do with your mind than it has to do with anything else.
And how do you get that way? Train, train, train to where you don't have to think about it. Everything is automatic. Get your, mm-hmm. get your intellect out of the game and let your intuition play the game for you because you're much smarter that way and much faster. Yeah, so we use intuition all the time in life. I had a guy painting on my house and he was doing these little, this was, it was windows, had a lot of little square pieces of glass with lots of wood pieces crisscrossed through them. And he had to paint the wood without getting any paint on the glass. And when I do that, I put tape on the glass because wow. the smears come off with the tape. He didn't use any tape. You know, and he painted every molecule of wood, didn't get a single molecule of paint on the glass. And he did it in a third the time than anybody else would have done it. And I asked his boss, I says, how does he do that? How does he learn how to have that precise, you know, coordination? And he says, oh, he says, he, he just gets in a zone. He says, he doesn't even know we're here. We could have a conversation standing right behind him and he wouldn't even know we were here. Well, his intellect was gone. He was just in that zone of doing what he does and he did it perfectly. So anything that's complicated, you can do better, faster, quicker, and more accurately out of the intuitive side. Because the intuitive side doesn't have that bulky intellect. Is this the right way? Should I do it that way? How do I hold my bowling ball here? Should my hand be this way or that way? And well, should I roll it a little bit to this side because I know it's going to go to that other side? And all that intellect and analysis just wads up the machine. Whereas the intuition knows exactly what to do with it. And that intuition comes out of confidence. Confidence comes out of experience and practice. So all you have to do is learn to get your intellect to be quiet and you can be good at all the intuitive things. Now, that little course I give will tell you how to do paranormal stuff, all the various paranormal things. You know, talk to dead people, talk to alive people, go out of body, remote view, mind to mind, all of the things that, that you can do, how to get data out of databases, you know, health data and, and past lives and yada, yada, yada. It, it kind of tells you how they work, why they work, and how to do it. But I found that there was a group of people who sometimes were in my courses four and five times and they just couldn't get it. They were struggling with it. And it's because they were so left brain dominant. You know, they were so intellectually driven that it was real hard for them to get their intellect to sit down and be quiet. And most people in our culture are like that because, hey, you get rewarded for being intellectual and you get slapped for not being intellectual. You know, you want a high paying job? Well, you got to be smart. You've got to yeah. use that intellect. You've got to have a good memory and you've got to be able to do complicated things with your mind. You know, if you're very right brained and you have holistic pictures and come up with great answers, but you don't have any idea how you got them or where they came from or why they're the right answer. Yeah, well, that's entertaining, but nobody's going to pay you anything for that, you know, and even the remote viewers got shut down because uh, the rest of the world couldn't understand them, you know, so it's not about whether you got quality information or not, it's just you conflict with the general culture and you're going to get run over when you do that. Oh, there's another path. You don't have to go through the traditional path of meditation. Meditation is a tool to help you discipline your consciousness. That's what it is. So without discipline, you have thoughts buzzing through your mind, all kinds of thoughts, all sorts of things. And it's hard to let go of them. And your meditation instructor says, well, just clear your mind. 
just exist there with your mind clear. So you clear your mind for about three seconds and just the thought comes through, you know, and you go, oh, and then you clear it again, another three seconds, another thought comes through. And with practice, you get the three seconds to 10 seconds to a minute to five minutes. And eventually you get to the point that you have disciplined your mind to where you can put it in a theta state and it'll just sit there empty. So you can open yourself intuitively. And that's the traditional path that everybody goes. If you're going to learn how to do paranormal, learn to meditate first because you got to get some discipline in your mind. Well, there's another path. So I kind of invented this other way because these guys just mostly were guys just weren't able to get that intellect to be quiet. So there's another path that gets there just the same. It's a equivalent path and it uses your imagination instead of your meditation. In other words, imagination is the tool. And the way it works is, well, let me just explain it. And everybody's probably experienced it. If you've ever had a daydream, where you got so involved in that daydream, that the daydream just kind of had a life of its own. You know, you started the daydream, and let's say it was two people, you and somebody else. And you said this, and then you, you imagine that they said that, and then you respond with this, and you imagine they said, you know, so you're playing both sides. You're putting words in the mouth of yourself and the, and the other player. But eventually, if you get in a day, most people have been in daydreams where they're not doing that. They are not consciously playing all the parts. The parts just seem to play themselves. You get into that daydream and you get so involved in it that stuff just happens and interactions just go. And it's not you. Well, that's a data stream. You're getting a data stream that's not this physical reality data stream from the larger consciousness system that is playing with your daydream. And it'll usually you just described writing. <laughs> like that's literally writing. Like when you're yeah. writing fiction, let's say. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You just let it go on its own. You just follow the lead and it goes and you stop thinking about it and you just put it down. Right. That's an intuitive flow. That's called the creative process. All creative processes come out of the intuition, not the intellect. The intellect isn't you know creative in that sense. All artists work out of their intuition. You know, musicians, everybody's, you know, if they're really good, just like athletes, it's good because you've given up the intellectual part of it altogether. Now you need the intellect because the intellect will help you learn to play the instrument. It'll mm -hmm. help you learn how to write good sentences, you know, how things to use and things not, you know, you need that intellect to give you the, the that's material. what editing's for Tom. That's what editing's for. <laughs> <laughs> so you need some tools, but then the intuition knows how to use those tools. So yes, you let it go. So the idea is that you start with something that engages you fully. And by that, I mean, it should engage all your senses, you smell it, you can taste it, you know, it's got smell, taste portions to it. It's got touch feeling, you see it, you hear it. So you have to get engaged because the more fully you get engaged in it, the easier it is to just let it go on by itself. Because otherwise, you getting fully engaged as two different people talking to each other is more than your little brain can handle. And it makes it very difficult. And if there's four or five people involved, well, you just can't do that. You know, you, you can't process that much data that fast. So get fully engaged and it makes it a lot easier. So I created this thing I called Tom's Park. And what it is, is an environment that has a lot of interesting, fun things going on that, that can engage you. 
and it's got a lot of different textures. It's got water. It's you know got dry. It's got sand. It's got grass. It's got trees. It's got animals. The animals all talk. You know they'll interact with you, and it's got all sorts of things to engage, and you start engaging it. But it also has a whole lot of places where paranormal things happen. Where you go to a certain room, you go to the healing room and there's all sorts of things there and devices that help you focus your intent on your healing or out of body or other kinds of things. So you go into the park and you play with the physical stuff first until you get into it. Until you get It's kind of like it sounds like hypnosis a little bit. Well, it is kind of self-hypnosis in a sense. You get into your story and what you're doing there and then as you get into it it's just natural to kind of walk up into some of those other areas and do other things. But it takes practice because a lot of times people will, okay, I get into the, you know, the jet ski. There's jet skis there that you can run. And there's lots of other things that are funny. He says, I can get into that to where I lose myself in it. And as soon as I start going toward the paranormal stuff, you know, my intellect comes back in. But that's just some practice. And I've got things that are instant. You don't have to do process. I got a couple of yellow benches in this park that if you sit on it, it instantly transfers you to another reality. And there's lots of things like that. There's, there's, you know, hot pools that are healing. There's uh, just tons of stuff that are fun, require you to interact, and also lead you into paranormal experiences. So I call that Tom's Park. And it was a way for these guys who just couldn't get their intellect to be quiet, to practice not meditation, because they just weren't able to keep that mind clear for more than just a minute or two before things would come in. Well, this doesn't matter. You don't have to meditate. Meditation's not in it at all. You simply practice with your imagination, getting good at imagining things. And you don't have to be in my park. You can imagine where you went. Remember when you were 10 years old and you went on vacation with your family, you can go back there and just replay that replay the things that happened to you all through your life and just get back and replay them in detail though. Enough detail that the interactions that you have, you know, start to fill in by themselves. So what happens is they get into these rooms where they're doing paranormal things and they start with their imagination and then they get into it and then stuff just happens and they forget about the intellectual part and they just go on with it and it worked great. So then they're able to get there without taking the meditation route, but just by practicing with their imagination. And I've made a deal with the larger conscious system that anybody who plays in the game there in Tom's part, the system will feed them data to match what their daydream is. So if you get a daydream about going fishing, then it'll the, the, the data stream you get will be about going fishing. And it'll basically pick up exactly where you are and then leads you someplace else. So where you start out, you're providing 100% of the input and output, and then you're presiding only 90%, and then only 80%, and then only you know 20%, and 10%, and then none of it. It's all data stream. And the system very carefully matches what you're doing, and then starts leading you off on a path someplace, and you'll always find, well, always, you'll mostly find that these paths take you someplace where there's something interesting for you to learn. They're almost always educational because the system really isn't interested in entertaining you. It's interested in you growing up and making better choices. So it typically takes you to something that's a good learning, you know, learning event.
for you. So All right, Tom. So that's Tom's <laughs> part. Yeah, I think. What would we do? Uh, I think we went an hour over. So yeah, okay, we've been to three hours. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, that tickle in my throat cleared up, so that's good. It's kind of behind us, but in any case, that's kind of it. You know, there's lots of logical consequences that I haven't dealt with. There's lots of other places you can go to explore. I've only brushed over the top of it. Mostly, I should say, the, the resources you have are my books. You know, mm -hmm. you get them most of the places you buy books. Libraries can order them. I'll have links below. Yeah, so that's one source. That'll give you the basic foundational, you know, ideas. I have a website that's got like a thousand videos playing. Those videos are often kind of long, but take them in pieces. You know, play a little bit of it and come back later. YouTube will keep your place. It'll let you come back and start back up at the same place. So I got, you know, lots and lots of hours of video. I got a search tool that I created. I didn't create it. Some techie friends recreated it. So you can go in and search those thousands of videos by subject. And it'll pull out little pieces from each one and give you a link and a timestamp, take you right to the place where that's being played. So that's pretty handy. And shortly, I don't know how long it'll take, but hopefully in a month or two or three, I'm going to have uh, Uncle Tom there that you can have a conversation with, an AI bot that will have been trained on all of that data that's in YouTube plus the books. I'm going to train it on you know all my material and then let it be there for conversations if you want to talk to Uncle Tom. Now, I have big warnings that Uncle Tom may say something stupid, you know, because <laughs> AIs are not conscious. They're just clever at looking at stuff and bringing up things that, that might make sense. But they're getting pretty good. And, you know, I would say it would be a really useful tool. You just have to make sure, as always, that you use your own brain to decide whether right. what, you're, what you're hearing is good stuff or trash. But you should do that anyway, whether you're talking right. to a bot or not. You should do that when you talk to another human being. You always have to be aware of, you know, what are you hearing and is it good stuff or not? You don't just go off and do stuff because some expert tells you to do it. You know, that's <laughs> being brain dead. You right. do stuff because it makes sense to you. So anyway, so that's basically where to go. Now, most of the science is going to be probably in the videos because I didn't mm -hmm. want my book to turn people off. You know, most people don't want to read about science. <laughs> you know, yeah, there's a lot of people who just don't read anymore, yeah, which that, is not great. Yeah, but. yeah, well, science puts a lot of people to sleep. So I kept it at a level that everybody can understand. It's not a science thing. It's not math based. It's just I'm a physicist, but this was written for everybody. And mainly it was written for those left brain people who live in their intellect. So it will take you on this trip logically, step by step logically. I've had any number of women who have gotten this book and asked their husbands to read it so their husbands could understand what they've been trying to tell them, you know, but they're intuitive things. They're, they're very intuitive and their husbands mm -hmm. just don't get any of that. And generally, they've had a lot of success because this is a way a left brain, intellectual, logical person can start and logically work all their way through it. So it's kind of a, an on-ramp to the intuition for, you know, left brain, logical types. And that's kind of what the book does. So people who are really right brain have a hard time reading it because it's very logical, very dense in information. 
and right brainers don't process information they just leap to the answer well, yeah they don't need the help though they they, they have yeah. all the intuition yeah they they get there without it but uh, us logical types need <laughs> need a pathway and that pathway better darn be logical otherwise we throw it away so this is so you'll find the basic theory in the books you'll find a lot of the science in the videos because that's more personal and if you want a really good video that tells you the science goes through a science, explains it uh, pretty well. Look up the uh, MBT hyphen LA 2016. In 2016, I gave a talk in Los Angeles where I introduced these experiments that I'm having the physicists work. But before I introduced them, I went through the whole theory of what's going on, mm -hmm. how it works. Then I introduced the experiments. And then in day two, I explained what difference does it really make? Who really cares? You know, who really cares the outcome of physics experiments? What's really the, the impact to us or to me now? And then we talk about the soft side of it, the love and caring side of it, rather than the, the science and logic of it. So that's a good one. And I've got a science trilogy up there that basically uh, is a science that's in a playlist on YouTube. You go to the called Science Trilogy Playlist, but it's not a trilogy anymore. It's probably got about five videos in it. If you really mm -hmm. like the science part of it, if you like the how does it help me live my life and, and have better relationships, you know, with my significant other and my friends. Well, then there's a whole series of those that I did with Lori Houston. She has a thing about something from the heart. Anyway, she's about caring and loving and relationship and that sort of thing. So we talk about that side of it, you know, not the objective science, but the subjective science, the understanding how to deal with your fears, how to get rid of them, what the fears mean, what the fears allow you to do, how it is you are your worst enemy. You know, your fear is your worst enemy and it makes a lot of your choices for you. And so that sort of thing, then you can get out of those. And there was a girl called Evita did a series of in the soft side of MBT, the subjective side of MBT for that too. And I have a lot of that in my videos. There's just lots of stuff out there. So take your time. The only suggestion I have is do it slowly. Mm -hmm. If you read those books, you know, all together, three books, there's probably about 850 pages there. And don't read it in two weeks, you know, or three weeks, you'll miss 90% of what's there. You got to read a paragraph and then think, how does this paragraph apply to me? And think about it and do some work on it. And a lot of people read it like 10 pages a week, you know, that sort of thing. It's something you have to read slowly and think about. Otherwise, you get to the end of it and it doesn't mean anything to you because it's all intellectual. And you don't want to just get this book intellectually. The idea isn't to read the book and be able to then do cocktail party chatter about the book, you know, and sound really smart. You know, the idea is to let those ideas sink into you at the being level mm -hmm. to where they're a part of you at the intuitive side of you that they're part of you. And the only way to do that is to just sit and think about what's being said paragraph by paragraph. It's very dense. There's, there's a lot of meaning in it. So you have to just chug through it slowly. And if you do, you'll get more out of it. But amazingly, if you read it a second time, you'd find things in there that were outstanding and you really learn a lot from, but you never knew they were in there. And how did I miss them the first time? <laughs> You know, I have people read it five, six, seven times, and every time they find things 
that are really meaningful, but they didn't see it before. That's because after you read it, if you read it slowly and carefully, you're a different person at the end. You don't see reality the same way anymore. And now, you know, it's like I said before, you get data, but you have to interpret it based on what you know and what you don't know. You know, all of that affects your interpretation. Next time around, all the same data in the book, but you'll see a whole lot more things in it that you didn't notice before. So it's good to read slowly and maybe even visit it a couple of times. Most people, I'd say, if they just read the book, get maybe 10% of what's in it. Yeah, so that's a, just a little advice to any of you that read it. Just take your time and read it slowly. It's fun. I try to have a lot of jokes and humor and, you know, it's otherwise your head would explode halfway through. You know, you can't be but so serious and so dense and thinking for so long before you just can't stand it anymore. So I put a lot of humor in it try to lighten it up and make it a little easier to to read but it's not a simple read it's something you work at all right my friend it was an absolute pleasure yeah three hours and 13 minutes that's uh that's good. Uh, I, I probably i'll probably split the second Ooh. segment up into another interview but sure split um, it up whatever whatever sizes work well more people will watch it when it's shorter it's just yes. unfortunately <laughs> Absolutely. If you get the whole thing down to uh, less than 10 minutes, you get a lot of people to look at it. Yeah. 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 In 10 minutes, uh, I, I could probably spout four or five sound bites that really wouldn't mean anything, but they'd feel good after they read it. But they wouldn't know much. So, yes. Well, yeah, that's the problem. You can't have, it's harder to have deeper conversations when you yeah. truncate everything. So I think an hour is the optimal size because you can get into enough, but people don't also get tired and then you know fall away so anyway i appreciate your time and this has been extremely illuminating okay well good sean i'm glad to have the opportunity and i hope uh, some of your watchers and listeners will get something significant out of it that will help them on their path to get to wherever it is they're trying to go that's the whole point the whole point you know information is terrific but shared information is much better <laughs> The fact that if you know something, well, great for you, but share it so that other people know it as well. Well, lowering entropy is good for everybody. So Yes, indeed. All, All right, right, my friend. Well, so long. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, thank you too. If you enjoyed this video, please click on like, subscribe, and the notification button so that you're alerted anytime I post something new. 